Today is going to be such an awesome day. I just know Jesus is going to be here. You know, it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. I've got my Jesus popcorn. I got my Jesus juice. And now, Jesus. What name should I call him today? You know what? Hmm. He has so many names. I think I will call him Lord. Yes, I'll call him Lord. Jesus, you're here. I knew you were be going to be here because it says two or three, and there's more that I know how to count. I can count up a little bit. There's more than two or three people. You're so here. I am so glad you're here, Jesus. Wow, you're here. What are we going to do today, Jesus? Follow me. Okay, I mean, yes, I'm going to follow you. I mean, I come to church. You know, sometimes I post a verse on Facebook. People know that I'm one of your followers. Come on, Lord. You know, Lord, there was this one thing in the Bible where you multiplied fish and bread. How about after this? We go to the casino. You multiply some of my money. Just follow me. Okay. Where are we going, Lord? Lord, we're going to go this way? This way looks hard. There's people down that road that I don't really like. You might make me talk to them. You might even make me love them. I don't know, Lord. Lord, how about you go that way? I'll go over this way. This way seems easier. There's a detour. I'll catch up with you later, Lord. Why do you keep calling me Lord and you not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord and not do as I say? I think it's something we all struggle with. We don't always listen to everything that Jesus has to say. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can open up your word Thank you for speaking to us. Speak through me today, Lord. Help me convey the message that you have given me. In your holy, most gracious name. Amen. Luke 9.23 says this. And he said unto them, If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Many people today think that they're a follower of Jesus when really they're just a fan. There's a huge difference between being a follower and a fan of Jesus, between knowing about Jesus and truly knowing him. You may know all about an actor, an athlete, or a musician. You may know their hit singles, all their albums, maybe who they're married to, maybe who their kids are. But the question is, do you really know them? Will you say, well, yes, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I come to church. I put in my tithe. I read the Bible. But are you really a follower of Jesus. Let me tell you what I am not asking when I ask if you are a follower of Jesus. I'm not asking, do you go to church? Church is an awesome place, and I love coming here on Sundays, on Thursdays, anytime the door is open. I just love being able to be here with all of you that I call my family. But just coming to church does not make you a Christian. You can't live by the Spirit if you only acknowledge his presence one day a week when you come to church. There are 168 hours in the week, and you have chosen that this 0.89%, not even 1% to spend with Jesus, 
and you expect to be called a follower. When we try to follow Jesus without being daily filled with the Spirit, you're going to find yourself frustrated by your failures and exhausted by your efforts. You can't call yourself a follower of Jesus unless you are truly filled with the Spirit. When I ask if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm not asking if you repeated a prayer one time and asked Jesus into your heart. I'm not asking if you have ever wore witness wear, maybe a cross, maybe a shirt that says something about Jesus, maybe one of our t-shirts that we have here. Just because you wear that does not make you a follower of Jesus. More than me wearing a Cleveland Browns jersey makes me one of the players. I'm not asking if under your religious things on Facebook it says Christ follower. When I ask if you're a follower, I'm not asking do you say bless their heart before you talk about somebody bad because, hey, if we say bless their heart, that makes it okay, right? You know, I'm not asking is your worship, is your ringtone a worship song? I'm not asking did your parents or your grandparents go to church. Just because they went to church doesn't make you a Christian or a follower of Jesus. I'm not asking if you've ever raised your hand at the end of the service and said, yes, pastor, pray for me. I'm not asking if you've ever listened to a sermon in the car on the way to work. This one, when I was putting this together, this one really hit me because a few years ago when I was driving from Canton up here to Talmadge to go to work, I would do that in the morning. I would do that in the afternoon. And that's all good and well to maybe listen to the Bible or listen to the devotional while you're in the car. But is it really a sacrifice? Yeah, you could be listening to music, but you're stuck in your car with nowhere else to go. So the sacrifice would be listening to it later at night, turning off the TV, or turning off your phone and reading a book that will really help you with your walk in Christ. When I say, are you a follower of Jesus, I'm not asking, did you go to VBS as a kid? And say, and I had fun. All of that is good, but the most obvious and basic definition of following Jesus means making some significant life changes. You know, I, I can't make changes right now. I'm just so comfortable where I am. Really? God wants me to be comfortable. Come on. Do you really think Jesus was comfortable when he was hanging on that cross? Saying yes to Jesus means saying no to comfort. Three points to today's message. The first one, we have to define the relationship. It's called DTR. If you're married, if you're dating, if you've ever been married or dating or engaged, you have probably had that DTR moment, that define the relationship moment. So it's time to define your relationship with Jesus. Are you a fan or are you a follower? Again, most people here would probably say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. But the reality is this, that fans have worn a mask for so long that we have even fooled ourselves into thinking that we are a follower, a true follower of Jesus. When I asked a few moments ago if you were a follower of Jesus, again, you probably thought of all the things that you do that make you a follower of Jesus. I come to church. I care about people. I accepted Jesus into my heart. Well, that's the problem with the gospel message today, that I think we water it down. We get all the wording wrong. We say, I accepted Jesus. Well, the thing is, we didn't really accept Jesus. There's nothing that you could do to really accept Jesus. He accepted us. You say, well, I found Jesus. Well, if you found Jesus, where was he hiding? Because I know my Lord and Savior and I know that he has never been hiding from us and from you and from me. He has always been there with his arms stretched out saying, come to me. We say, I, I, I. And we say that I'm a follower. It's all about us. It's all about what Jesus 
did for us. Fans are all about the do, where followers are all about the done. There's a book called Becoming a Contagious Christian by Bill Hybels, and it's one of the books we read in college. And in it, he says this, religion is spelled D-O, what you can do, where Christianity is D-O-N-E, what has already been done for you. There's a huge difference. So picture this. You're out with Jesus for coffee. And he comes in and he sits down and he skips all the small talk about how your day is going, what is going on in your life. And he looks at you and says, it's time we define the relationship. I want to know if our relationship is exclusive. Do you worship me and me only? Are we past just this casual weekend thing where you come to church? What is your commitment? Do you truly want to know me? Do you truly want to spend time with me? Do you want to tell me everything that is on your heart and on your mind? Are you trusting me in the good and the bad? So fan or follower, how do you define your relationship with Sometimes we look at what we call a cultural comparison. We look at other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. You know, I don't do that. I may not do all the things that the Bible tells me to do, but look at them. And we think Jesus grades on a curve, kind of like when we were in school and we were given exams like, well, hey, since I was down here, if Jesus is grading on a curve, I'm technically up here. But if we did that, we would still all fail. I'm so thankful that Jesus grades on a cross and not a curve. If you find yourself measuring up your relationship with Jesus by comparing yourself with others, it's likely a self-indictment of all the things that you are not doing that you should be doing. And sometimes we use a list of rules to measure our relationship with Jesus. And I have been guilty of this just as much as the next person. Well, I only listen to Christian music. And you know, I don't go dancing. And I don't do this. And I only read from the King James Bible because, you know, that's how Jesus talked. And you know, when I preach, I wear a suit and tie. I wear a suit and tie because I like it, not because I think, oh, I have to do this in order to to have a good relationship with Jesus. And we put all these rules and we call that legalism. And maybe you're confused with what this word legalism is. Maybe you've heard it before, but you're not exactly sure. What it is is legalism is a list of rules that have maybe been passed down from generation to generation, from time to time, saying, if you want to be the perfect Christian, you'll follow these rules. Well, in the Bible, Jesus has an account with a man who was a very, very legalistic person. And his name is Nicodemus. So go ahead. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 3. If not, we'll be putting some of the verses up. So here, John chapter 3, and we're going to meet Nicodemus. And he wasn't just a fan. He was a well-known and well-respected man of God. He was a member of the Sanhedrin which was an elite group of religious leaders, so he was a Pharisee. He had been an admirer of Jesus from a distance for quite a while now. He listened to the teachings of Jesus, and he couldn't help but be inspired. And he watched and seen Jesus' incredible miracles. But it wasn't his power that was impressive. It was also his compassion and love. So John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Says this, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He, again, he skips all that small talk and gets straight to the point. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean? 
how can, a, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and you don't understand these things. You read the Torah, you've read all that Old Testament, and you're not understanding what I am trying to tell you? Verse 11, I assure you, we tell you what we know and what have seen, and you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So here we have Nicodemus going to Jesus. And in verse 2 it says, he comes to him at night. And why would he go to Jesus at night? Maybe it was so no one else would see him going to Jesus. He didn't want other people to be like, why is he going to Jesus? He's a Pharisee. He knows all the rules. Why would he go to that man? And he would avoid all those awkward questions from all the other religious leaders. Maybe he went to him at night because there was no one else around and he could truly spend time with Jesus by himself. Maybe he thought, I could begin a relationship with him, but I won't have to make any real changes because nobody else knows. He could have most certainly went to him during the day because of his religious status. People would have moved out of the way and been like, you go ahead. You want to see Jesus? You go before me. Sometimes I think that's how we are. We look around. Maybe we're out to eat and we're like, I know I should pray before my meal, but is somebody watching me? What are they going to think if they see me bowing my head to pray? Nicodemus knew there was something special about Jesus, and he wanted to find out more. In verse 1, he goes to him and says that I know you are God because you can do these great things. You can do these miracles that have been told about. He had come to a point of belief, but where would he go from there? And again, Jesus didn't waste time. He said, you must be born again. That must have been very hard for Nicodemus to hear since he was this religious leader. Wait a second. It's not about these rules and about me making these sacrifices. He had been trained up in the temple. By the time he was 12, he would have had the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, memorized. He had spent all his life in the temple. And he had this long religious resume. And Jesus makes it clear, it's not about religion. It's not about the rules. It's about what I am going to do for you. Nicodemus had to humble himself. And he knew he would have to change his way of living. And he had to make a decision about Christ. But making a decision about Christ is definitely not the same as following him. Jesus would not just accept a relationship with Nicodemus where he simply believed. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to follow. He didn't want just Nicodemus at night. He wanted him during the day where everybody else could see what was happening. We're going to turn over a few chapters to John chapter 7. This is the second time where we hear about Nicodemus. So John chapter 7, starting in verse 40. When the crowds heard him say this, and so they're talking about Jesus, 
Some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we had been expecting. Others said, yes, he is the Messiah. Still others say, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? They had a saying during that time. And as we were growing up, I don't quite remember the message, but I know we would always ask my dad if he was going to preach this message. And it was called, Can Any Good Thing Come Out of Nazareth? So because of where Jesus was, they thought, no, he can't be the Messiah because nothing good comes from there. Verse 42, For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, Why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. They're like, this Jesus, the words that he used, we just, we are in awe. We think he is the Messiah. Verse 47, they said, Have you been led astray too, the Pharisees mocked? Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is upon them. They're ignorant because they don't know all the rules. Again, it is said that the Pharisee had, had over 600 rules that they had to follow. I am so glad we don't have to follow all of those rules because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to keep half of them. Again, Jesus came to abolish the law. Verse 50. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, at night spoke up. And he probably did this a little bit before he spoke up. Probably looked around. Did anybody else really say anything? Come on. You guys know this Jesus guy. He's real. Come on, somebody say something. And he gets the courage is it illegal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? Then they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Nothing good comes from that area. Again, Jesus' popularity has grown. People are starting to listen to him more than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. They're going to him for guidance. They're listening to his teachings over the religious people in the temple. And they're in the temple, they're getting pretty upset that all of a sudden Jesus is more popular than them. So they're like, we got to find some fault in him. We got to destroy this Jesus because if we don't, People aren't ever going to listen to us again. And if they don't listen to us, how are we going to get them to pay their money to the temple? How are we going to make a good living? What charges can we bring against Jesus? And again, we already know that Nicodemus is starting to believe in God. And he finally said something. But would his belief be put into actions? Would those words that he spoke go a step further than just words? His mind is racing. What could possibly go wrong if he goes public with his faith, with his belief in Jesus? And again, there in verse 51, he says, Is it illegal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? Though he stops short of saying what he believes, he does risk his career, his reputation, and publicly speaks up on Jesus' behalf. This is no longer a private conversation about what he believes. What can be discovered here is that there's going to be a moment like that for all of us who claim that we are a follower of Jesus. We're going to be put in a position where we have to decide publicly if we are a fan or a follower. The last time we meet Nicodemus is at Jesus' burial. Here, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, spent all of his money that he had on burial spices. And it says that he bought 75 pounds worth, which equaled to about $200,000 worth 
of spices to help preserve the body, to help honor Jesus and his burial. A costly gesture that would cost him more than money. Everyone now would know that Nicodemus was a follower of Christ. There was no more hiding his affection for Jesus. When most others had abandoned Jesus, even Jesus' closest friends, the disciples, were in hiding. Nicodemus goes and makes this great gesture of affection. This great thing of devotion saying that he is my Lord. He was no longer a secret admirer. He wasn't just an enthusiastic fan. He had become a follower of Christ. For Nicodemus, it would cost him a powerful position in the temple. It would cost him the respect of his co-workers. It would cost him his livelihood. It would cost him his friendships. And it would probably most likely cost him family relationships. And in the end, it is said through Christian tradition and passed on from time to time, it eventually cost him his life. And he was martyred for his belief in Christ and following Jesus. Being a secret admirer or a fan of Jesus would cost him nothing. But becoming a follower came with a high price tag. It always does. Point number two. How to tell if you are a fan or a follower of Christ. You need to deny yourself. In Luke 9, Jesus meets three different people who say they want to be a follower of him. The first one says, Master, I will go where you go. Jesus looks at him and says, Listen, the birds, they have nests to sleep in. The foxes have dens. But I, I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't know where I'm going to lay my head. And we never hear from that man again. The second one, Jesus says, Follow me. And he comes to him and he says, Okay, I'll follow you, but first... Let me go home and bury my father. Now you may think, what is wrong with this man wanting to go home and have a burial service for his father? Well, through Jewish tradition, we can probably tell that his father wasn't even dead yet. Because if his father was dead, he wouldn't have been there in the first place. He was waiting for his mom and dad to die. And here's the thing about funerals in that day. They didn't last just one day. They lasted for weeks. It was weeks long of a celebration of life. So he says, okay, I'll follow you, but first, after my parents die, then I'll come and follow you. We don't know why he was waiting for his parents to die. Maybe he was afraid of what they might think if he was going to follow this controversial rabbi. Maybe he was afraid of telling them, sorry, Dad, I'm not going to carry on the family tradition. I'm going to go be one of Jesus' disciples. Maybe he was waiting for his inheritance. Whatever his reason, he was not willing at this time. He said, later. I'll do it later. And the third said, okay, I'll follow you, but first, let me go home and, uh, you know, tell everybody goodbye. And Jesus says to him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. How often... Do we do that? We look back at maybe our life was and who we were instead of looking ahead at what we can become. We put too much talk into who we were previous, before Christ. Say, hey, when I, before I was a Christian, let me tell you about all the fun I had and all the destruction I caused instead of looking ahead to what Christ calls us to. We can find two things from this account. They call Jesus Lord. This account can also be found in Matthew 8 where they call him Master. And this term Lord has a couple different meanings. 
And here when we say, Lord, they're saying, you are in charge of my life. You are the master and I am the slave. I am your bond slave. Slavery at that time was a little different than what we think about modern slavery. So a bond slave was somebody who was more of an indentured servant. They owed somebody something. They didn't have the money to pay. So like, I'm going to come and I'm going to work for you for a few years. And as I do that, I'm calling you Lord. I'm calling you master. And sometimes at the end of their term, they'd be like, wow, he treated me really well. You know what? I'm just going to stay here and I am going to continue to work for you as a bond slave. So they're saying, Jesus, you are in charge of my life. I'm calling you, Lord, and I will listen. Again, the first person, he just leaves. And the second two say, but first. How many times do we do that? Jesus tells us to do something like, okay, but first, let me get this thing in order. Jesus says, no, I want to be your first And if I can't be your first, then you can't be my disciple. They weren't just saying no. They were saying, not right now. When you say yes to Jesus, you aren't saying he is the teacher and I am the student. You are saying he is the master and I am the slave. You say he is the potter and I am the clay. That's what it means deny yourself. I read a story one time of this man named Scott who talked about going to church in high school and he really felt the calling of God upon his life. He said, okay, I'll follow you, but first let me graduate high school and then I'll follow you. He graduated high school. He's like, okay, God, but first let me go to college. While he was in college, He felt the calling of God upon his life again. He's like, "Um, okay, God, I hear you, but first, let me graduate. Let me get this diploma, then I'll follow you after, you know, after college. After college, he graduated, got his diploma, got a really good job. He said, but first, let me, let, me, let, me, let me work here a little bit. And he got so consumed with work, and he forgot what he promised God. He got married. Him and his wife had some kids, and they often talked about getting back into church and truly becoming a follower of Christ. And he said, well, let's let things settle down a little bit. But it never seemed like the right time for this man. For more than 25 years, Scott told Jesus, I'll follow you tomorrow. Tomorrow will be the day that I make a decision. Well, the good news is that Scott recently heard Jesus calling on his life. And he decided to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. We often hear about this story. People putting Jesus off from one day to the next. And for years, they do it. They say, tomorrow, I'll follow you. Tomorrow, I'll make the decision. Tomorrow, I'll give up my addiction. Tomorrow, I'll give up these things that you need for me to give up. But again, that eventually came for Scott. And he would tell you that he lost a lot in the land of tomorrow. His wife left him and took the kids. But it's okay because he gets to see them every other weekend, which gives him plenty of time for his AA meetings. The land of tomorrow is where we can find divorce, we can find addiction, we can find an unmanageable debt. In the land of tomorrow, we can find unfaithful spouses and prodigal children. Scott's problem, he was comfortable where he was. A comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there. Saying yes to Jesus means saying no to comfort. 
There's a strange baptism practice that was happened in the Knights of Templar. When they would get baptized, they would get baptized with their sword. And as they were going down into the water, they would hold their sword up in the air. As to saying, Lord, you can have control of me, but you can't have control of this sword. What I do with this sword on that battlefield is mine. Have the rest of me, but not this. This is not part of the deal. This is mine. What are you holding on today saying, this is mine? God, you can have all of me, but you can't have this. Lord, I want you to use me, but you can't have my wallet. I want you to use me, but stay out of my finances. I want you to use me, but what I watch and when I watch it is mine. I want you to use me, but don't ask me to give up the bottle. Don't ask me to give up looking at pornography. Don't ask me to put down my phone when I just want to sit and relax. What is that sword that you were holding on to today? Over 20 times in the New Testament, Jesus says, follow me. So I think that would be pretty important if Jesus kept using the word, follow me, over and over. Here's the thing. Jesus never called the most qualified people. And I am so thankful for that because every time I get asked to preach, I'm like, okay, pastor. I'll do it, but I think to myself, I'm not qualified. I am not qualified to stand up here. But Jesus calls the most unqualified people. We see that in the disciples that he called. In those days, a rabbi of the temple, they would have followers. But there would be a long application process in order for you to be even considered as a candidate. Of this rabbi. But again, Jesus just the opposite. He took out people and said, Follow me. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at a couple verses. Matthew chapter 4 and starting in verse 18. One day, Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew throwing nets into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come. Follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. In some versions it says, and immediately, or straightway. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called unto them, come too, come and follow me. And immediately they followed him leaving the boat and their father behind. They didn't just say, hey, hey Jesus, we're uh, busy right now. We're fishing. We're trying to make a living. Let us finish this up first. Then we'll follow you. They didn't have any excuses. They did it right away. They answered the call. How long have you been on the fence? How long have you been playing church? In this one spoken word, I believe it's by Jefferson Bevke, it says this, Seven days without Jesus makes one week. And that's why my favorite game is to play is called hide and seek. Seeking Jesus at church, but hiding the rest of the week. One way fans try to follow without denying themselves is trying to negotiate the areas of your life of our life where we want Jesus to have access to. We try to negotiate the terms of the deal. Jesus, I'll follow you, but don't ask me to sell my possessions. Don't ask me to forgive that person. They don't deserve that. They hurt me. Jesus, I'll follow you, but don't ask me to save sex for marriage. I can't handle my desires. Jesus, I'll follow you, follow you but don't ask me to give to the church. That's my money. I worked hard for that. And instead of following Jesus with our financial life, we follow Money Magazine. In our relationships, instead of following Jesus, we follow Oprah. We follow Jesus just not in every 
area of our life. In the book Unchristian, put out by Barna, they said this, that it is reported that 65% of 18 to 42-year-olds in America have made a personal commitment to Jesus that is still important. So 65%, they say, of 18 to 42-year-olds are still going to church. And that sounds really good. But further down in their research, it also states that only 23 of those 23% of those believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong. And only 13% said getting drunk is a sin. And the list goes on and on. They'll say, I'll follow Jesus, but not there. Not if he tells me to do that. In other words, 65% say that they are committed to Jesus, but most of them aren't committed in every area of their life. Jesus never left the option of selective commitment. He never left that option open and said, well, you can follow me in these certain areas. People want to be close enough to Jesus to have eternal life, but not close enough that it requires personal sacrifice. That's how a fan will try and follow Jesus. A fan will try to accept the invitation to follow Christ, but they don't want to say no to themselves. Luke 9.23 clearly states this, And he said to them all, If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You can't come after Jesus without denying yourself. The phrase deny himself is just the idea of saying no to yourself and yes to Jesus. And the last and final point, point number three, to be a true follower of Christ, you have to die daily. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He said, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die daily. We have to die daily to ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. The symbol for Christianity is a cross. A symbol of torture and death is the image that represents being a follower of Christ. There are plenty other images associated with Christianity in the Bible. Why couldn't Jesus use a dove, a symbol of peace? Or a shepherd's staff, a symbol of protection. Or the rainbow, a symbol of hope and a promise. Why choose two bloody beams nailed together? So you, Jesus says, you want to follow me. Pick up these bloody beams and carry them around. So I've heard this verse out of Luke 9.23 over and over throughout the years. And I never thought until this week, maybe about the foreshadowing that Jesus put. This was way before the crucifixion, way before Jesus was put on the cross. And he said, hey, if you want to follow me, pick up this cross. Because eventually, that's where I'm going to be. So again, why the cross? The cross was so offensive and repulsive during those times. It was a symbol of execution that the Romans would force people into submission. Now, for the Romans, it was a symbol of power and strength. So why the cross? The cross is, one, a symbol of humiliation. The Romans had many ways to execute people. Stoning, fire, beheading. Some people, they would give a drink of hemlock, a poisonous drink. But crucifixion, on the other hand, was very expensive. It would require four soldiers and a centurion just to oversee it. Crucifixion was used to publicly humiliate someone. It would make a public statement that this person hanging on the cross had no power and was nothing. Here, Jesus, who could have had everything, ended up on the cross with nothing. The one who could have had the whole world at his feet made himself humble and chose to wash the feet of the world. If we're going to follow him, 
It means humbly taking up the cross and making ourselves nothing. So why the cross? The cross was a symbol of suffering. We all know what happened to Jesus. We read about it. We hear about it. We've seen movies and depictions about it. And we hear all about the suffering before and during hanging on the cross. Beaten just to the edge of death. Jesus says this in John 16, 33. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have trials, you will have hard times. But be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. Taking up your cross and following Jesus can and will bring pain and suffering. You can't carry a cross without suffering. You will not be able to follow Jesus without suffering. But as he says, I have overcome the world. Can you really say that you are carrying a cross if it hasn't cost you anything? Has it cost you anything? If there's no sacrifice involved, if you're not at least a little bit uncomfortable, there's a good chance You're not carrying a cross. And lastly, why the cross? A symbol of death. Jesus was taken to Golgotha, the place where he would die. We have to die to our own desires, our own pursuits, our own plans. When we become a follower of Jesus, that is the end of us. A cross more than anything else represented death for those who were carrying a cross the outcome was certain dead man walking jesus makes it clear that taking up your cross and dying to yourself is how to become a true follower of him unfortunately many churches today have decided that this message of the cross this message of suffering for jesus is too uncomfortable and too offensive. And as a result, there are many fans who call themselves followers, but they're not carrying a cross. Luke 9, 23 and 24 says this, And he said unto them all, If a man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. The cross that represented defeat for a follower is an image of victory. The cross that represented guilt for a follower is an image of grace. The cross that represented condemnation for a follower is an image of freedom. The cross that represented pain and suffering for a follower, it's an image of hope and healing. The cross that represented death for a follower is an image of life. The cross may not be attractive. But for a follower, it's beautiful. So are you a fan or a follower of Christ? I want to illustrate that a little here. So this thing of milk represents us. And how no matter what angle we look at it, We see who we are. When you decide to follow Christ and you say, yes, I'm going to be a follower. I'm going to put a little Jesus in my life. If you look hardly, you can see. But when hard times come, and if somebody isn't looking at the right area, are they truly going to be able to see that you are following Christ? If something gets in the way, 
Are they truly going to be able to see that you are following Christ? When we decide we want to be a Christian, when we decide we want to be a follower instead of just a fan, we don't just put Jesus in one area of our life. We put it throughout our whole life that no matter how you look and how you see, people are going to see Christ in you. We're going to go into a time of invitation. A time where you get to decide. Are you a fan or a follower? Are you just playing church one day a week? Or have you made Christ the Lord of your life? every head bow and every eye is closed, as we get ready for worship, the time is now. The day is today. Don't tell yourself tomorrow is where I'm going to surrender my secret sin. Don't tell yourself tomorrow I'm going to start being generous to those in need. Don't tell yourself tomorrow I'll share my faith. Don't tell yourself tomorrow I'll worry about my recovery. Don't wait. Today is the day. To truly believe is to follow. Father God, we thank you for your sacrifice upon the cross. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to follow you. We ask that we are able to surrender every area of our life. Surrender it to you. Help us to put those words into practice when we say that you are Lord of my life. And we give you everything. In your holy and most gracious name.